0: It's an interesting healing, wasn't it? Uh, normally Jesus heals people in- instantly with a word or with a touch. Sometimes he doesn't even have to be there. He says to people, go, your daughter is, is well and she's not even, uh, not even there. Here we see a healing that at first glance seems to have not worked properly the first time. And you might think, "Well, did Jesus have to try again to to make it work or to, to finish it off?" It's also a, a little bit unusual in that Jesus takes this man away out of the village, away from the crowds. Um, and uh, there's one other occasion where uh, he does this. In Mark's Gospel, takes takes a man, a, a deaf man who can't can't speak takes them away from the crowds, uh, healed him and in this case also says don't tell anyone, don't go into the village, uh, don't let anyone know what's, uh, what's what's happened. So it's a bit of a, a, an unusual um, scenario here, an unusual healing. Um, what's happening? Why, why would Jesus uh, heal on this occasion in this way, in these two stages? Well actually it's three stages, isn't it? The first stage is the man was blind. The second stage, he could kind of see, but everything was fuzzy and unclear. And then the third stage, he could see everything clearly. It's important for us to understand the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Why, why he did them, why he healed, why he uh, stilled the storm, why he fed uh, the people from loaves and fishes. And essentially there are three reasons for his miracles. Uh, they're, they're a demonstration of God's love and God's compassion. God's heart is towards the downcast, towards the poor, towards the oppressed, towards those who are under the, the power of sin and the curse. And Jesus' healing from diseases, his delivering people from spirits, uh, from evil spirits, is a demonstration of God's mercy. However, uh, that's not the primary reason. If it were, then we would have to ask, well, why didn't Jesus heal everybody? Why was was there anyone left in Jerusalem or in all of Judea or Samaria or Galilee that wasn't healed, if, if it was primarily about God's compassion? The key reason for his miracles, and not just the healings, but all of his miracles, were that they were signs, signs that pointed towards his identity as the Messiah. Many of Jesus' signs weren't actually original. Most of his miracles had already been done in the past by prophets in the Old Testament Or if they weren't identical, they were very similar. When Jesus was on a number of occasions crossing the Sea of Galilee and he, had, he enabled his disciples to pass safely to the other side and save them from the winds and, and the waves, there was kind of a, 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 a reminder of the Old Testament miracles of the people of Israel passing through the water and being kept safe by God. In the Old Testament, there were two great waves of miracles or signs. There was a big wave at the time of Moses and Aaron, as the people of Israel were being delivered out of Egypt and brought into the Promised Land. And then there was a second big wave of miracles at the time of Elijah and Elisha. But then there was a third great wave. Maybe we could call it a tsunami when Jesus showed up, and uh, not only did he perform a few signs and miracles, but he he duplicated all of the or many of the signs and miracles from the past as a way of saying, well, actually, I am I am the one to which all of those pointed. I am the fulfillment of all of that in the past. And it's a way of him saying, well, I'm, I, I've come in fulfilment of what Moses said. So he performs miracles like Moses. And I've come in fulfilment of what the prophets said. And so he performs miracles that remind them of the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, kind of the, the, the key prophet who sums up all of the Old Testament prophets. And we'll see that next week when Jesus is up on the mountain talking with Moses and Elijah. So his miracles are signs pointing to his identity as the Christ, as the Messiah. But also his miracles often had a teaching purpose. They were parables that illustrated something of the nature of his ministry or the nature of the Kingdom of God. And this is one of those parables Miracles. As I said, it was three-stage healing. The man was blind. Then he could see something, but it was fuzzy and unclear. And then thirdly, he could see uh, clearly. The fact that Jesus took him away from the crowds and told him not to go back into the village showed that uh, he wanted his disciples in particular to be a witness of this. Because he was doing this sign that would prepare them for the conversation that they were about to have on the road to the next town. So, as they're walking on the road to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks these two questions Who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? They're great questions to ask someone if you want to trigger a conversation about Jesus. What do you think? Who do you think Jesus was? Have you heard anything about him? Have you read anything about him? What, what, what's your view? Uh, a few years on campus, uh, if you could have the graphic up, thanks, uh, we, we did a survey, it might be a little bit hard to read, the text is a bit small there, it was a public survey, and the question we had up on a big banner is Who do you say I am? And we were asking people, What, what do you think? Who, who do you think Jesus is or Jesus was? And we gave people nine different options, uh, four of which are true according to the scriptures. So, He's the Son of God, come as a man. Uh, he is the Jewish Messiah. He is. Uh, the judge of humanity and he's the one who took God's wrath in our place. Uh, Then we gave him a few other options based on uh, the the popular responses when this kind of survey has been done uh, in the past in other situations. Um, Interestingly, 19% of them opted for other. They weren't actually happy with any of the options we'd given them. They wanted to... Uh, to have their own view, their own opinion. Sometimes it was a bit of a mixture of of those or sometimes it was something just very unique that we hadn't even thought that, that people might say. Now you might think it's a positive thing that 27% of participants said that Jesus is the Son of God, come as a man. Probably that number is skewed a bit because we had... We probably had more Christians coming because they saw we were a Christian group so they came and uh, probably people in the group themselves participated in the survey. But also many people chose that option uh, almost as a token response. And a few times I heard someone say, well, I went to Catholic school, that's what the nuns told me. So that's, that's what they've heard and maybe they are thinking, well, this is, what, this is what they want me to say. This is the right answer. And so they, they said, he's the son of God. But when pressed further and asked, well, what, what do you think that means? They were very vague and unclear about what it actually means to say Jesus is the son of God. This is a crucial question for understanding Mark's Gospel. Who... Do people say I am and who do you say I am? All the way through the Gospel we see people coming to different conclusions about Jesus' identity. Uh, Some call him good teacher. Uh, Some say son of David. Or simply people, it just says people were amazed but they don't necessarily say anything. They don't know. They see, oh, he's done this amazing miracle or he's taught these profound truths but... We don't know who he is. Mark's Gospel opens with the words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or you could say, the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the two, the two titles. But the first time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus is publicly declared to be the Son of God is by the centurion at the cross. He is the most unlikely person to confess Jesus as the Son of God. He's a Gentile. Not only is he a Gentile, he's a Roman Gentile. He's he's an enemy of the Jews. He's the one responsible for putting him up on the cross physically. But also he's a soldier probably uneducated, probably illiterate, the kind of person that they may not have expected to to know deep religious spiritual truths. So all the way through the Gospel, people are not knowing who Jesus is and then the most unlikely person, a Roman centurion, says, surely this man is the Son of God. And apart from Jesus himself... This is the only time that someone says, you are the Christ, when Peter says it. And as, as we see, see Jesus travelling, as we see him teaching, performing his signs, we see him saying to the people he heals, don't tell anyone. Uh, we saw today when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, Jesus said, Don't tell anyone about me. Some Bible scholars call this the messianic secret. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to hide his identity from people. The reason he's doing that is because uh, we won't actually truly see or understand or comprehend who Jesus is, what it means to call him the Christ, the Son of God, unless we see the whole picture which must include the cross. If we just look at his teaching, we'll call him Rabbi, good teacher. If we uh, only look at his miracles, we might say, well, he's a prophet. If we just look at him riding into Jerusalem, as the crowds did, We might say, he's a king, he's the son of David, he's come to save us from the Romans. But to see Jesus clearly and fully, we need to see the full revelation of him that the Father gives as we see him go to the cross and the resurrection. As we see him suffering, rejected by his own, crucified and risen again. Jesus only completed his role as Messiah once he had gone to the cross in humble obedience to the Father. This, that was the revelation given to the centurion at the cross. And the fact that it was a centurion who otherwise would know no different shows that it must be, it's not something we work out. We don't deduce Jesus' identity, it's something that is revealed to us by the Father. So the people, seeing Jesus, teaching, seeing him do his signs and miracles, uh, in Jesus' words were seeing but not perceiving. They were hearing but not understanding. Like this man who had some kind of vision but it was fuzzy and unclear. He could only make a guess that the walking trees he saw were actually people. Left to our own reasoning, with all our biases and prejudices prejudices and our ideas about who we want Jesus to be, we'll never see him clearly. We'll choose to only look at one part of the story, the part that allows us to make a custom-made Jesus that suits us and what we think he has to be for us. But it won't be the real Jesus. However, when Jesus makes himself known, we see him clearly. When he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? He's not implying, well, the crowds, they're they're just a bit thick. They can't work it out. But I know you're smarter than that. So let's see if you can come up with the right answer. He's not saying that. They are the ones to whom he is making himself known. Uh, at the start of the Gospel, he's, when he's talking about parables, he says, to you has been made known the secrets of the kingdom of God, but, but not to them, not to the crowds. He had shown them his glory. He had taught them about his Father and about his mission to do the Father's will. And so Peter's correct answer, you are the Christ, wasn't it because Peter was smart, it was because it had been revealed to him by the Father. But even Peter was on the right track, he said the right words, you are the Christ, he still didn't comprehend what that statement meant. He could not see how Jesus could possibly be the Christ if he's going to go to Jerusalem and be Rejected and be mocked and be crucified. But the cross wasn't just one aspect of Jesus' work. It was, it was the focus of Jesus. If we don't have the cross, we don't have a part of Jesus, we don't have Jesus at all. Peter had to see that, yes, if you're going to say I'm the Christ, you have to embrace in that me going to Jerusalem, being crucified and rising again. There's a group of people who call themselves red-letter Christians. Uh, There's a a number of well-known Christian leaders, uh, mainly in the US, who are part of this movement. And uh, these red-letter Christians, in their own words, say they want a Christianity that looks like Jesus again. They say the church has lost its way, they've lost sight of the real Jesus. We want want a Christianity that looks like Jesus. They call themselves red-letter Christians because they focus in on the teaching, the words of Jesus in the Gospels, which in some versions are printed in red. And they especially focus in on the Sermon on the Mount. say, well, here is where Jesus teaches us uh, how we should live. How we should follow Him, but Jesus' focus wasn't on the Sermon on the Mount. He never says, "Do you remember what I said way back then when I first started my ministry?" All of this teaching of the Lord, He's not calling them back to remember His sermon. Uh, he's calling people to look forward to see where He is heading, which is the cross. Jesus set His face. Towards Jerusalem. For him, this was the heart of his mission, and he called his followers to focus on that. So, a Christianity that looks like Jesus is a Christianity with the cross at the centre, not our attempts to follow his moral, or ethical teaching. So, Jesus rebukes Peter. Uh, for not understanding, not comprehending that it must involve the cross. But then he he calls the crowds. The the crowds are probably all following them as they're walking down the road, but here he stops and he wants the whole crowd, everyone to hear what he has to say next. And his response is, I think, a bit intriguing. After all this talk about who do people say I am, how do people perceive me, um, and how do you perceive me? Who do you perceive me to be? And after rebuking Peter for thinking he could understand Jesus by using human reasoning, we we might expect him to say to the crowds, "If anyone would come after me, let him correctly understand my true identity, what it means for me to be the Messiah, what it means." for me to suffer. That, at least in my thinking, would be the logical flow because he's talking about people's understanding of his identity. But his call to the crowds is different. He doesn't address the fact that people, including Peter and his disciples, didn't yet understand him and his mission but he goes right to the heart of why they couldn't understand it why they couldn't see Jesus clearly. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, for all his bravado, Peter, who later would say, Lord, I'm willing to die for you, and he jumped up with his sword to defend Jesus when he was being arrested. For all of this, he's actually ultimately concerned with his own welfare and his disciples are ultimately concerned with their own welfare. This will come out soon as they're continuing to walk to Jerusalem and his disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Who are they interested in, Jesus or or themselves? Their vision of the kingdom was of Jesus, Jesus there as king, sure, in all his glory, but them sitting there at his left hand and his right hand as his cabinet, as his uh, ministers, uh, receiving the acclaim of the people as they are up there with Jesus, the Messiah and, and king. They wanted glory. They wanted glory for Jesus. But they also wanted glory for themselves. And they wanted it without the shame of the cross. But Jesus says this is man's thinking, not God's. The ways of God seem upside down to us. But the reality is in our sinfulness, we're the ones who are upside down and Jesus comes to turn us right side up again. Jesus' path to glory was through humble, obedient service, through laying aside his own will and following the will of his Father. He is the eternal Son, through whom and for whom everything was made, who has the right as God to claim authority. But instead, he takes the path of humility of self-giving, of laying down his life for those who are his enemies so that his enemies might not just be reconciled to him, might not just become his friends but might actually be part of his family. And this is the way it's always been. Jesus' humility wasn't something he took on board because... He had to because of the problem of sin and evil in this world. Humble servanthood isn't a product of the fall. But humility, self-giving, service, love is actually at the very heart of God himself. Other person centeredness is, is in the character of God himself. Our God is a humble God because he puts others before himself. So really I shouldn't have said humility was his path to glory. His humility was his glory. We see the full glory of God in Jesus' humble, self-sacrificial giving. And because we're creatures made in his image, the Father's goal for us is that we would be like Jesus. These traits are also to be at the heart of a true human being. So in Jesus we, we don't only see the loving, humble self-giving of God, we see the loving, humble self-giving of a true human being who is in right relationship with God. So Jesus turns our whole world upside down and when, when he does, we realise, well, actually, that's the way it's supposed to be. The biggest barrier to us compre- comprehending who Jesus is isn't our intellect, but our ego. Notice that Jesus essentially says the same thing three times. And I've got a chart with my projectionist. i stop looking at her phone. And um, Indiana, give us the image. Yep. So whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give as ransom for their soul? If someone says the same thing three times in three different ways, it says to us this is is pretty crucial, isn't it? It's pretty important. In our human pride we think that we can save ourselves. We think that it's possible for us to gain the whole world and not lose our soul. We think that we have the capacity to atone for our wrongs, to somehow ransom ourselves, to make up for our sins ourselves. And it's not really that we think our capacity to do that is great. It's normally because we think that our sins are only small so they can easily be dealt with. The Bible presents the problem of sinful humanity as idolatry but the biggest idol we have is the idol of ourselves, our own arrogance, our own self, selfishness, our own ambition, our own wanting to take the place of God in our lives. And this is why the cross of Jesus is an offence. It's an offence to our pride, to our egos, As Jesus goes to the cross, we see him doing for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. There's nothing a person can give to ransom their soul from sin and from the grave. Jesus goes and he does that on our behalf. We can only stand helpless and watch him as he does that in our place. The cross declares our helplessness, our emptiness and our desperate need of mercy. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus means our ego must die. We must be put to death. We must be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer we who live but Christ who lives in us. So that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus' solution for us is not to hype us up or build up our self-confidence, but to take us with himself to the cross. To crucify our selfish desires and to raise us into new life as citizens and sons of the kingdom, He is the one who will cure our blindness, who will cure our fuzzy vision and enable us to see clearly, to see everything clearly, to see that we are loved with a love that's stronger than death. And as we're secure in this love of God and in Jesus who took us to the cross, then we'll be free we'll be free to love. The most secure place is to know that you're loved and when you know you're loved, you no longer have to think about yourself anymore because you're secure. You're free then to think of others and to truly love God and love your neighbour. Let's pray.